You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 18. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 18. And we read beginning with the first verse. The Word of God says this, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. Lord, the verses that we have before us tonight point to a great need in every one of our lives. What the verses call for, you have produced in the heart of every person you have saved. And yet, Lord, we are called by you to choose the very thing that you've produced to embrace what we are capable of because of regeneration, because of the work of your Spirit in our hearts, to embrace it and to live in it every day in every realm of our lives. Father in heaven, we acknowledge tonight that it takes grace for us to walk in humility. It takes the power of the Spirit for us to walk in humility. It takes being mindful of Christ and mindful of salvation for us to walk in humility. And it is vital that we walk in humility. So as we consider, Lord, what you have put before us in these verses tonight, would you grant us strength to see and to believe and to yield to what is in these verses and then to walk in the truth, by the power of your Spirit. We do pray for anyone hearing my voice who doesn't know Jesus. We ask for salvation for them. The same mercy that we have received, we desire for them to receive. But may you tonight, Lord, meet with your church in a way that edifies us and in every way makes us more and more of the people you have destined us to be and you are making us to be. May this contribute to your ongoing work of sanctification in our lives. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is possible to miss the forest for the trees. You've heard that saying from time to time, he misses the forest for the trees. What the saying means is it is possible to miss the whole of something because we are fixated on just parts of it. So fixated on one element or another element that we fail to put the pieces together. We fail to see the whole. When I say Matthew chapter 18, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? For most people who know the Bible, the first thing that comes to your mind, if I say Matthew chapter 18, is church discipline. And you would not be wrong, of course. We find the process for church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. But what we miss sometimes, even when we're thinking about the subject of church discipline, 
is that the discussion of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18 is part of a much larger discussion. In fact, Matthew chapter 18 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on what it means to live as a child of God. My prayer, my hope for you and for me, by the time we finish this 18th chapter, is that we will never think about it the same way, that when we hear Matthew chapter 18, the first thing that will come to our minds is, what does it mean to live as a child of God? Our Lord has just given Peter a lesson about how to behave regarding an earthly expectation. Should we or should we not pay the temple tax? Jesus taught him about that, but our responsibilities in this world should never obscure our focus on an identity that transcends this world. If you know Jesus Christ, you are God's child forever, but you're God's child now. Right now, in this world, with all of your earthly responsibilities, with all of the things that call for your attention, as you strive to faithfully execute those responsibilities, you and I must never lose sight of our identity that transcends this age. We are children of God. And we're meant to live as children of God right now. The Bible announces this truth over and over again. John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who explains your new birth? God does. This is how you became His child. John eleven fifty one. He did not say this of His own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Same chapter, 20th verse, Romans 8.20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I mean, personifying the creation, it groans, waiting for the day when the full revelation of our status as children of God is manifested. Romans 9, 8 says, this means that it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. 
1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 5.2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. And in addition to all of those verses, just think about how many times in the New Testament you read of the new birth, how many times in the New Testament you read language like brother, sister, brethren. Think about all the teaching of God's Word regarding adoption in the realm of salvation. This is not a small subject, is it? This is something that the Bible greatly emphasizes. Who are you, Christian? You are a child of God. And as you live now, in this world, on this side of eternity, you're to be living as a child of God. Live like who you are. Well, that's what this chapter is about from beginning to end. The entire chapter relates to this subject. Verses 1 through 4. The kingdom belongs to God's children. Verses 5 through 9, the king identifies himself with God's children. Verses 10 through 14, the children of God are to be cared for. We are cared for by God, but we're also to care for one another. Verses 15 through 20, the children of God are to be corrected. You see, this is where church discipline comes into play. We're part of a spiritual family, and in God's family, there's correction. In God's family, there's discipline. You can see, can't you, how it it would be so easy to think wrongly about church discipline if you remove it from its context. It's about how we live as the children of God in this present age. This is why there's discipline in the Lord's church, because you're a family member. No such thing as a child of God that doesn't receive correction from our Father. Verses 21 through 35, the children of God are are to be forgiven. And as we make our way through these verses, you're going to see this is not just about how we view ourselves, but it is preeminently about how we view each other. Life in the family of God, how we are to think, how we are to behave as God's children. Not just thinking about our relationship to God, but our relationship to each other in the family of God. This is what good parents do. They they don't just teach their children how to relate to them, the parents. They teach their children how to relate to each other. I was blessed to grow up in a home where even before my parents became Christians, we were taught something about how siblings relate to each other. Now, mind you, we didn't always practice what we were taught. But we heard things like, you, you must love your brother. I had no sister, so I always heard in the context of your, of your brothers. You must love your brothers. You must be loyal to your brothers. Right? You, you might have a beef with them, but let someone else have a beef with them, and that's your brother. You'd be loyal to your brother. You must protect. You must, I was the oldest, you must take up for your brother. And then when you had conflict, you were taught you must forgive your brother. We are family. You don't hold a grudge against your brother. Well, this is something much higher than that kind of instruction. This is 
from our God. This is holy truth, but it has to do with spiritual family relationships. And this is how we're to live our lives, having spiritual eyes granted by the Spirit of God so that we see how we are truly by God related now to each other. Life in the family of God in a kingdom characterized by spiritual family life, a kingdom of brothers and sisters, so that that truth transforms our view of everything. So as we make our way through this chapter beginning tonight, just at the outset, examine yourself in light of this. Do you recognize, do you think constantly, consistently, I am a child of God and my brothers and sisters are a part of the same spiritual family and God is calling us to relate not just to Him in a way that reflects what He's done in our lives, but to relate to each other in a way that reflects what He has truly done in our lives. So, tonight we're thinking about children and God's kingdom. Children and God's kingdom. Two main points, but let's first read the verses again. Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you turn, it's in the passive voice, you could say unless you are turned, unless you are changed, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. First point tonight, the interests of the world. The interests of the world. The disciples have a question for Jesus. It has to do with greatness. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is the, the, the question that prompts our Lord's teaching on the, on the, throughout the entire chapter on this subject, what it means to be a child of God in the world. But why would the disciples ask this question? By the way, they didn't just ask about it. They argued about it. In fact, Luke tells us they'd been arguing about this issue before they asked him about it. Luke 9.46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Arguing about who is the greatest, which leads to the question, who is, what, what is it? What does it mean to be the greatest in the kingdom? How can one achieve this? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I wish I could say that when Jesus finished his teaching here, it settled the issue. No more arguing about it, but we know that's not true. In fact, we're told on the night when Jesus was betrayed, they're still having arguments about who's the greatest. Luke twenty-two twenty-one. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Our Lord's own example instructing His disciples about an altogether different view of greatness. Why the question on the part of the disciples? Why the debates? Why the arguments? Why do they care about who's the greatest? You and I know why they cared. It's because fallen man loves to be exalted. Fallen man loves to be the greatest, the best, the most highly thought of, the most successful, the one at the top of the food chain. This is what men want. And even though we are saved men and women, I'm talking to the church, I'm thinking about the disciples of Jesus, even though we are saved men and women, we still know fleshly desires to stand out in front in a way that doesn't please God. A fallen world cares about greatness. A fallen world has a distorted view of greatness. What you and I sometimes have a hard time admitting is how much we have been influenced by that world. God has saved us out of it, and yet we are still influenced by it in how we think about a subject like this one. So at the very outset of this chapter, we must be convinced it is not the world's concept of greatness that matters. It's not our own concept of greatness that matters. This is what we fight with so often. We fight with who we want to be versus who God has chosen for us to be. What we want to achieve versus what God grants to us. Where we thought we would be by this time versus where we are. No, it's not the world's concept of greatness that matters. It's not our own concept of greatness that matters. It is Christ's standard of greatness that ought to matter to us. And so when we find ourselves with ambitious desires, we need to ask, where's that coming from? These desires of mine. Are they coming from the Spirit of God or are they coming from my flesh? Ambition can be sanctified. We just dealt with that in our Truth and Love Conference, didn't we? One ambition. Therefore, we have as our ambition. Ambition in and of itself is not wrong. Ambition can be sanctified, but our ambitions can also be held captive by what is not sanctified, what is sinful. So are we convinced that the only view of greatness that matters is God's view? Could could we make a commitment in our hearts tonight that what I really want is the kind of greatness that God considers to be great, that would please Him? The interest of the world, this is what drives the question. They're just giving voice to what the whole world thinks about. Who's going to be first? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's the greatest among us? Second point, last point tonight, 
This gives way then to the interests of the wise. Verse 2, and he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, and this underscores the gravity of what he says, truly, I say to you, listen, if you're wise, now you want to tune in. That's why our Lord begins his statements as he does. He's saying to us, if you care about what, what the answer is, you've asked the question. If you really want to know what the answer is, then listen. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, therefore, will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord gives them an object lesson. He's in a home when this conversation takes place. There were children in the home. Jesus calls one of the children to himself, puts the child right in their midst. Luke says that the child stood by him, stood at his side, Luke 9, 47. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And then when he begins to talk about the reception of such children, Mark tells us, that Jesus took him into his arms, Mark 9, 36, and taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them. So this is a small child, old enough to stand beside Jesus, small enough that Jesus can take him into his arms. And what Jesus does through this object lesson is arresting. He, he takes their question and, and takes one step back from what they're interested in. The question is, who's greatest in the kingdom? Jesus begins the answer with, who is in the kingdom? You're talking about the all-star team. Let's talk about the team. Who's on the team? Who's in the kingdom? What kind of person enters the kingdom? When he says, truly I say to you, This is important when he says, unless you are converted, unless you turn, this underscores the finality of what he's talking about. I mean, there is no other option. There is no other way. There is no other way into the kingdom except the way that he's about to describe. So before you think about greatness in the kingdom, let's examine what kind of person belongs to the kingdom. And he talks about humility. No one enters the kingdom of heaven. No one is saved apart from humility. God reduces every sinner in their own eyes before he saves them. You have to know you're lost to recognize that you need to be delivered. You have to know you cannot save yourself before you can look to the Savior. You must recognize the true nature of life as you have known it if you're going to turn from life as you have known it to receive a new life in Jesus Christ. All of these statements we've been learning in Matthew, looking at together, take up your cross, follow me, lose your life to have life, all of this requires God awakening the sinner to his or her true condition before God. That is a humbling work by the Spirit of God with the Word of God. No one is ever saved until the Lord has humbled them. What kind of humility is indicated by becoming like a child? 
truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What kind of humility characterizes this child? Well, the first thing Jesus makes clear is it's not a humility that you have by nature. It's not something that you were born with. It's not something you begin with. Remember, this is just an object lesson the child is, just an analogy. This is, this is what you've got to become like, which means, first of all, it's a humility that turns. Unless you are converted, unless you turn, unless you are changed and become like this child. You weren't born with this humility. It's not natural to you. In fact, it's explained by the grace of God. This is why the verb is in the passive voice. I mean, it is expressing what he's talking about. It does find expression in a decision. Repentance is something that you and I exercise. It is granted by God. It is the result of regeneration. But nonetheless, we are commanded to repent. We don't have that ability in and of ourselves. The grace of God explains a repenter. Genuine repentance is a gift from God. But God grants it in a way through regeneration that you and I then exercise it. We turn, we repent with a humble faith. What do you turn from to become like this child? Well, you turn from pride. You turn from self-sufficiency. You turn from unbelief. And yet at the same time, it's not just a humility that turns from a current course, it trusts, it turns to a new way. You turn from something to someone. This is a humility that bows to the authority of God. This is a humility that admits its need before God. This is a humility that believes the verdict of God. In fact, the very confession of sin, homilieo, is to say the same as. God says, here is who you are. And when he has humbled a soul to the point of saving them, they say, yes, that's who I am. Yes, that's what I deserve. But then that same humility gratefully receives the remedy of God, believes the promise of God, and then begins a life that exists for the glory of God. Why does Jesus choose a child to illustrate this? Because of what characterizes children at a young age. Think about it, children. Weak, vulnerable, trusting, no real influence, under authority, not thinking about fame, not thinking about notoriety. They're children. John MacArthur said, this is how Jesus characterized conversion. Like the Beatitudes, it pictures faith as the simple, helpless, trusting dependence of those who have no resources of their own. Like children, they have no achievements and no accomplishments to offer or commend themselves with. Isn't this how you came to Christ? Empty-handed I know who I am now. I know what I have achieved in the sight of a holy God in myself. I know what accomplishments I could boast of before your presence. I have 
nothing. I cast myself on your mercy. I am completely dependent upon you if I'm to be saved. So, this is what characterizes becoming like this child. It's humility, a humility that turns, it's changed from a current course of pride and self-sufficiency and imaginary achievements and all of that to turn to God in a way that acknowledges who you really are, what you really have, and who you really need. So Jesus begins there, you see. Before you ask about greatness in the kingdom, do you recognize where everyone begins? Not in an exalted state, but in a reduced state. (laughs) This is where we all started. But now notice what he says. Verse 4, whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark this down in your mind. The way in is the way forward. No one enters the kingdom without humility and the greatness in... uh, In God's kingdom, greatness in God's kingdom is measured by that same humility. The way we start is the way we must always continue. The way in is the way forward. It's a sad thing, isn't it? You witness it a lot in evangelical ministry, I hate to say, but you see it in the Christian life in general. But I think about ministry a bit. Young man converted in his youth thrilled to know Jesus, thrilled to learn the Bible. He's a nobody in his own eyes. But then he gets older. He learns some doctrine. In some cases, he earns some degrees. He's afforded opportunities. And now he's no longer a nobody in his own eyes. In his mind, he has taken a step forward. But where there is pride, he has taken a tremendous step backward. We're all called to walk the same pathway we started, like children. Leon Morris had this to say, we should not take this to mean humbles himself as this little child humbles himself, but rather humbles himself until he becomes like this little child. Humility was a quality Jesus himself displayed, Philippians 2.8, and which he looks for in his own. It is not a quality that comes easily and naturally to people like us. A person must work at being really humble. In fact, can I say this real quick, insert this thought in his comments. I think one of the great enemies of real humility is trying to wear it, trying to put it on, trying to Embrace it superficially, thinking of humility in terms of facial expressions or tone of voice or bodily posture, trying to somehow prove that you're small in your own eyes. I tell the young men in the seminary all the time, don't try to act like you're humble. Ask the Lord to make you humble. There's a difference. He says this, in modern Western societies, children are often seen as very important, but in first century Judaism, they were not. Other, of course, than that a man who had many children was seen as richly blessed. Children formed an important 
indication of divine approval. But outside of that, he says, in the affairs of men, children were unimportant. They could not fight. They could not lead. They had not had time to acquire worldly wisdom. They could not pile up riches. They counted for very little. To speak of them as humble is surely a reference to their small size rather than any intellectual or spiritual virtue. Their smallness made them very humble members of society. Thus, when Jesus says that His followers must humble themselves as this little child, He was not uttering a truism, but making a most unexpected pronouncement. He draws attention to this little child, the concrete embodiment of childhood standing there in their midst, close quote. I mean, think about that. In this circle of adults, Jesus takes a little child to his side and he says, if you want greatness, you've got to become like this. Concrete example. You've got to become like this child. Standing before your eyes is an example of the standard. Standing before your eyes, therefore, is a rebuke. Is this how you see yourself? Like this child. And so this is the challenge to this day for all of us, the Lord's disciples. What is our view of ourselves? What is the place we think we deserve it's amazing how many people who name the name of Jesus are constantly battling dissatisfaction. And if you try to get to the root of why we feel so dissatisfied, it's because we are not in the place we think we ought to be. What do you think you deserve? What false sense of self-importance is going to have to be mortified, put to death, if we're going to be great by God's standard? And then, and this is what I meant earlier when I said, don't try to act humble, ask God to make you humble. What I want us to recognize, just let this additional thought lodge in your mind. What Jesus is, is actually describing is just an accurate self-perception. It's not great people trying to be humble. I'm a great person trying to think about myself as ordinary. No, what he's calling for is small people embracing the grace to see that we're small. It's not, it's not you in all your glory choosing to believe lowly about yourself. It's you and I, by the grace of God, seeing ourselves as we really are. And if we ever do, we will be humbled. We will see what we really are, what we really deserve. So they ask the question, and he takes them back a step. Before we talk about the all-star team, let's talk about the team. How does anybody enter the kingdom? How does it all begin? It begins with an accurate self-perception. The Lord reveals to the sinner who the sinner really is. And there's a broken, humble heart that is willing to receive the grace of God with amazement that such grace would be extended to the sinner. But now, men, here's the question. Have you stayed on that path? Because that's the path to greatness. It's to continue walking in that accurate self-perception. It is to see your smallness, your weakness, your utter dependence, your 
total lack of accomplishment in and of yourselves is to see yourself as someone who's received mercy and grace and in continual need of mercy and grace. So my question for us tonight is, have you ever been humbled so that you turned? You were turned. You were changed so that you entered into God's kingdom by trusting in Jesus Christ. Not the future earthly sense of the kingdom, of course. I'm talking about the spiritual salvation sense of the kingdom. Have you entered the kingdom because the Lord humbled you to the dust and with amazement you embraced what God offered you in His Son? If you have, would you say amen? Then let me ask you, are you walking this same pathway? Have you maintained the self-perspective with which you began? How small were you in your own eyes when the Lord saved you? Are you still that small in your own eyes? How is God and His kingdom being dishonored by us right now through our pride? Greatness in the kingdom? Well, is the kingdom being reflected in your marriage? Or is your pride dishonoring God in that realm? Is your smallness on display in your parenting? Is it possible to lead others with a sense of our smallness? Yes. In fact, it's necessary. We don't lead well without a sense of our smallness. If your children are to be saved, who saves them? If your children are to bear fruit, who produces it? If your children are to have hearts responsive to their parents, who grants them such a heart? Don't you know your helplessness? And so there's no way to lead a family without the sense of your smallness. How do you view service to other people? Are you put upon... Or is it a privilege? It gets to how you see yourself. What about your response to mistreatment? One of the greatest tests of our self-perspective is how we respond when someone mistreats us. Our Lord is our model. Have we embraced His humility, Philippians 2? Or are we responding in a way that reflects, if my Lord was hated, the perfect Son of God, who am I to think that people won't hate me at some point. And, and by the way, our Lord was hated without a cause. He never mistreated anyone. I've mistreated people. So I can't say that what I've received, I've never given to anybody else. My sense of my own sinfulness will help me to respond rightly when mistreated. Do you find yourself comparing yourself with other people? Do you find yourself at times jealous of other people? Where is our sense of smallness? Are you nursing your wounds? Or have you a tender heart that through the sadness of being wounded, you still seek the best for the one who would make himself or herself your enemy? See, we've got to see that we struggle to see. And we've got to see that the greatest hindrance to real progress 
is a false sense of progress. We think we've, we've moved up and we've moved forward, but because our view of ourselves is no longer accurate, we've actually moved backward. When you realize what greatness is by Christ's standard, then we can say, may the Lord humble us again and again. And may we choose that humility again and again. And may we be able with sincerity to say, Lord, make use of my small life to tell the story of my great God and His great glory. Nothing will help you more to become more like your Savior than to set your eyes on Him and take your eyes off of you. He is great, and we are small. The way to greatness is to become like this child. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can't read verses like these without recognizing our struggle with a false sense of of greatness. There isn't a sin that we commit, not one, that doesn't have the seed of pride in it. We need the grace that produces humility. We need for you, Lord, as you so faithfully do, to mercifully, patiently, kindly, compassionately tear down in us what so often stands up that doesn't deserve to stand up, to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Lord, help us to think sane thoughts. And where there is that humility, Lord, we know there's gratefulness and joy and a sense of blessing and there's contentment and enthusiasm because we are a people who are on our way to hell and you made us your own. We are not your children in name only. We are your children in reality. Explained by your grace alone, found in your Son alone, it is amazing grace that has made us your children. So as we see ourselves and as we look at each other, may we see the family of God. And may every vain, exalted, sinful thought about ourselves be mortified. We realize this is too great for us, but we thank you that we have your spirit and you're at work in us producing that accurate self-perception. Thank you for this, Lord. And may you continue that work in each one of us for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.